0: If you publish my essay, I'll stop bombing people. John Hilton III. John Hilton III. are <laughs> so great they made three of a them. professor in religious education at Brigham University. M.Ed.
1: Degree from Harvard
0: University. Let me take you back to the 1990s. It's a totally different world back there. A guy named... He's on the FBI's most wanted list because he's
1: sticking bombs in people's mailboxes for 17 years. The
0: Unabomber. People have died, people have been hurt. The FBI cannot figure out who this guy is. What have you been up to? I've been doing a lot of writing. Get anything published? Yeah, one thing. And he sends it to the New York Times. He says, if you publish my essay, I'll stop bombing people. The New York Times contacts the FBI, and then they contact my grandpa. Elton has used his techniques to help the FBI identify possible authors of the Unabomber's manifesto. And that leads to the Unabomber being arrested. The idea that there's a unique style of writing it's part of the academic literature and it was actually part of the criminal
1: literature but also has led to helping us discover that there are many unique voices in the book of mormon it helps us answer the question if joseph smith wrote the book of mormon there's
0: so much intellectual evidence that says there is no way joseph smith wrote the book of mormon and word prints is one of those and so i thought it was awesome that my grandpa's research was you know fighting crime. But it was even cooler when I discovered what he was doing in terms of the Book of Mormon. So mm. a question is, did Joseph Smith write the Book of Mormon? If Joseph Smith made up the Book of Mormon, then he's not a true prophet. The church he started is not true. Right? There, so much hangs on, is the Book of Mormon the word of God? Mm. Did Joseph Smith make it up? Mm. So what my grandpa was doing was he took a corpus of Joseph Smith's words, and then he took words from Mormon, words mm. attributed to Alma in the Book of Mormon, because there's lots of different speakers in the Book of Mormon. And basically, he statistically proved Joseph Smith, Oliver Cowdery did not write the Book of Mormon. The word prints are totally different.
1: Just help help us understand a little bit more of like what exactly is it, is the, the structure of stylometry and how it works in just layman terms.
0: So with the type of stylometry that my grandpa was doing, and and there are different branches of it, he was looking at small words, the, Mm. of, and, so. Words that we use all the time, and we might not distinguish how frequently we're using them or in what way or in what order. But there actually is a coherence that individual word print or fingerprint and how people use them. And so that's what he, that was kind of the main method that he was using to detect differences in speaker voices.
1: So he's using these different, he's using this uh, method to look at in the Book of Mormon, okay, there's these multiple characters, right? And so Nephi, um, Alma, Mormon, they have a specific way that they place their words. And then how does it look, how, how does it appear on like a, if, if I'm looking at it visually, what does it look like? So
0: this, this is kind of funny some grandpas take their grandsons fishing. My grandpa never took me fishing but he showed <laughs> me awesome charts like he's got he would make like this little 3D models kind of showing in a three-dimensional space. here's kind of the zone of what Nephi is talking. Here's Alma over here here's Mormon over here. here's Joseph Smith. he's way different than all of them. And so, that, that was how he would conceptualize it and kind of show it in a
1: three D space. So, in a three D space, you can, because I'm, because I know, I mean, we don't have to get into the detailed details of it. They can basically calculate whatever the analysis is that they use, and it distinctly shows the differences. This is specifically the consistencies that you see on this graph of Alma. This is specifically the consistencies of Nephi, and they're they're separate, right? Right. This, so, and especially separate from
0: Joseph Smith there's no doubt that Joseph Smith is not the voice of Mormon. Mormon's voice is distinct. Alma's voice is distinct from Nephi's voice. Different, and, and that's actually one of the interesting findings, is that it's not just that Joseph Smith didn't write the Book of Mormon, it's that there are different word prints within the Book of Mormon, which is what you'd expect. The Book of Mormon is a
1: multi-authored work. And so you could say, because I'm just thinking about, you know, in my mind, okay, I mean, I've read Harry Potter, okay? You know, I've read, you know you know, the classics, right? You got Shakespeare. You got a lot of people that have, that are like genius writers. Okay. Can just give us an understanding of what would be the likelihood that Joseph Smith could pull this off? A great question. So some researchers
0: actually did statistical analysis. They looked at Jane Austen, Charles Dickens, other authors in that genre and found that they did have voice distinction. The Jane Austen characters had different voices, just like you're talking about with Harry Potter. However, there was a, there's a way to measure the difference between voices. And when they looked at Book of Mormon individuals, like Mormon versus Nephi or versus Alma, the difference mm. in Book of Mormon voices was greater than the difference in Jane Austen characters. And again, that's something that I would not base my testimony of the Book of yeah, Mormon yeah, on. Yeah, 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 yeah. But it's so interesting to think, here's Joseph Smith with very little formal education, and he's translating the Book of Mormon in his early 20s. Mm. So is this something that a young adult with no education can pull off, this level of voice distinction?
1: Yeah. Probably so, not. So there's, there's multiple voices. Joseph Smith, at the time, he's only 23. What details do we have about his writing ability generally? So his wife, Emma Smith, says that he couldn't
0: dictate a coherent letter. And I think that she's actually one of the most interesting witnesses of the translation process of the Book of Mormon. She's there up close and personal. She tells us that Joseph Smith, as he's translating, he would, if he took a break, come back and pick up immediately where he left off. To me, that's astonishing. Like if I'm writing a research paper, type, 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 go eat lunch, come back. First thing you do, scroll back, see where you've been. Joseph Smith never does that. It's like he scribing, and it came to pass, and the scribe's like, and it came to pass. I, if I said unto my father, and they write that down. Hey, let's go get lunch. They mm-hmm. come back. I will go and do the things which the Lord hath commanded. They just, boom, pick up right where they left off. That's amazing. So how long did it take him to, from to, the time, to, compl- to complete it? Yeah, From the time Oliver Cowdery arrives, and they start scribing, uh, translating the Book of Mormon, until the time that it's done is less than three months. And during that time, they're doing tons of other stuff. They're running back and forth to different cities, baptizing people, receiving revelations in the Doctrine and Covenants. So altogether, scholars estimate that there's about 65 working days to translate the Book of Mormon.
1: 65 working days. So within those three months, knowing that they were doing all these other different right. things, 65 only days of all those days, of like those potentially close to 90 days, even that's impressive. But even of those, it's, it's likely just, what do they do, big journal entries that they could see what they were doing? Yeah, do exactly, looking
0: at other records, letters. And one of the things I think is so interesting is imagine that's eight pages per day of translation. That mm. means something like the Psalm of Nephi is translated in an hour or two. And then if you start digging into the Psalm of Nephi, you see that there's all these Old Testament psalms that are integrated into the Psalm of Nephi. Really, it is, it, is, it is this amazing poetic piece
1: of literature. There's no way this was composed in less than an hour. So this is Second Nephi chapter four. You are talking about? Correct. Yeah. And it has references to pieces of the Old Testament psalms of the psalms from the yeah. So what it, what 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 is really happening is there's a real person
0: Nephi. He's been reading psalms that are written on the brass plates or that he had mm. reflected mm. learned at the temple whatever. And it's pouring out of him. Mm. And so here's a real person with real feelings who's going through a real hard time quoting from the Psalms. And that's something that even you and I, we don't even realize that. We're educated readers the and the writers, and we're like, we, we often don't even see that there's mm. Psalms embedded in. And this is something that Joseph Smith translates
1: in less than an hour and a half. That's amazing. So so wait, so back up. Because cause cause I've always wanted to ask this. What, what do we have that helps us know that, like, for sure, it is 100% sure, certain, that it was three months and it was, and it was 65 days? Like, what is it? What helps us know that? So
0: if you start backing things up, Joseph Smith gets the plates in September of 1827. He translates the first 116 pages, but those are lost by Martin Harris. So the plates are taken away from a time. And when he gets him back, it's September of 1828. So the first year has gone by and we have zero in terms of what we have as the Book of Mormon today. Then over the next six months, Joseph Smith tries to make some sporadic attempts to translate, but he doesn't have a scribe. Mm. Oliver Cowdery comes in April of 1829 that's when the translation of the Book of Mormon begins in earnest, and it's done at the end of June.
1: So that's where you get the... So we know for sure, just, and it's mostly, is it, is it just journal entries, basically? Yeah, journal entries, letters. So I think I just, because a lot of people would say, okay, well, he still could have just been this really genius guy. Like, he could have just written this, you know? And I'm not trying to play, like, you know, the devil's advocate or anything. I'm just trying to think, like, like, because for me, I've read the Book of Mormon, and I believe that is true. I know that it's true. I've had God witness that to me. Um, and there's these different technicalities of it, right? But um, so so let me back up. So we're we're actually getting to the point where we know that there are distinctions in the different authors. An example of that being in Second Nephi chapter four. There's no way in the time span that he did this. That he could have like written those those intricacies. You believe that it was a Nephi was a man, and he had these these experiences, and you can see that in this in this uh, research of the distinction in his voice. Great question. Yes,
0: absolutely. And so if you take um, Nephi as a specific example, so my grandfather, he did statistical research where he was looking at these uh, small words. I'm not a statistician, so I'm not looking at things the exact same way, but I looked more at unique words and phrases. Mm. So consider the phrase, my soul delighteth. Mm -hmm. Sounds like a scriptural phrase. It appears 11 times in the Book of Mormon, and it's only used by Nephi. Hmm. He uses it on multiple different occasions. It's like a signature Nephi phrase. Hmm. So that's what I was looking at is not, not so much the statistical details, but more oh. of the nuanced details of what are the topics where a person is just clearly gravitating that. Or in this case of my soul delight, just a unique phrase that seems to be a signature for that person. So it seems clear that Nephi is a distinctive character. He has distinctive ways of speaking, just like your great aunt Sally has her own distinctive voices and phrases that she uses. That's so cool. But, yeah. um, before we leave this topic, one other thing, you, you were kind of, you're kind of saying, I don't want to play the devil's advocate, but you know, people might be wondering, is it possible Joseph Smith could somehow be writing, writing things down ahead of time? So mm. he's, he's prepped or he's just a super genius. And Emma Smith tells us he has no notes. There's, he is, he's got his face into a hat and he's reading the words that appear on the seer stone. So according to the closest witnesses, there is no way that Joseph Smith is reading off a prepared text. So is it technically possible that Joseph Smith is a super genius yeah, and yeah. somehow creates this? It's possible. And that's why I always say, like, don't base your testimony of the Book of and yeah. Wordprints. It's that spiritual witness that really matters. But can I take us on a little diversion? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So a couple of years after this experience I had with my grandpa at BYU, I'm serving as a full-time missionary in Colorado. And we knocked on a door and the people like, oh, come on in. And we we're so excited. But as soon as we went in, they just started throwing the, all this anti-Mormon material at us. They're like, did you know that Brigham Young said this and all these things? And I'm like, you know, a 20-year-old kid. I've never heard this stuff. And as I walked out, I was kind of like, whoa, mm. like, what, what just happened? Like, are, are all these things that I was just told by these guys true? And what I think is so helpful is that I had a grandpa who taught me about word prints mm. and we could talk about chiasmus, the translation process of the Book of Mormon, other of these little intellectual details mm. that show us that Joseph Smith is not making up the Book of Mormon. So when I was confronted with some new facts that I needed to assimilate and come to understand, it was really helpful to have some intellectual backdrop
1: mm. for
0: the Book of Mormon again you don't like base your testimony on it but people are gonna hit you with intellectual evidence against the Book of Mormon so I think it's helpful to know that of there's course. a lot of intellectual evidence for the Book of Mormon and to be familiar with that
1: so for you you felt that when you're on your mission yeah you know your book your Book of Mormon testimony is based on spiritual things as well but you're saying having the intellectual, pieces that your grandpa helped you establish, that actually was helpful for you to not not get thrown off? Yeah, and I would kind of describe it as like the scaffolding. When
0: you're building a building, mm. you use scaffolding to kind of support the building while it's being constructed. That's right. I think there's something similar here as your deep spiritual testimony is being constructed for there to be an intellectual scaffolding. So when some kind of random new fact... I use the word fact in you know air quotes here. Some, some, Something that maybe even is taken out of context, maybe it's not even a fact, is thrown at me. I don't just like, oh, well,
1: forget about everything.
0: No, 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 I, I've got a holding space yeah. to be able to think and analyze
1: more independently. Well, let's take a second and look at like, what, what would you say are some of the assumptions that might be made? Because there are different things that come up. So if the question is, did Joseph Smith write the Book of Mormon? What are some assumptions that, that are, like if that's at the top, that's the question at the top. What are some of the assumptions that might be made with some of these accusations or that might throw somebody off if they don't have the scaffolding?
0: Yeah. So, I mean, maybe a person grows up and in their mind, their mental picture of the translation process of the book more is that there's a sheet between Martin Harris and or Oliver Cowdery and Joseph Smith. And they're translating. And then later on, they find out, oh, Emma said that Joseph is looking into a hat. At a seer stone. and I'm like, "Whoa, that like that's not what I heard." And all of a sudden, that starts to make me feel like, "Well, maybe
1: everything's not true." Okay.
0: That I, I feel like that kind of thing could throw somebody off.
1: So, like the idea of if 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 the expectation, if what I'm assuming that it is, I'm assuming that it was a certain way, and that it's always that way, that could throw me off. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Okay. Because I think it's important to address the assumptions. Because I think that we always see the question at the top, and then it's like, "Well, what are the assumptions that we might make?" One of them being, it's. It's this way that i'm always picturing that's the way that it is and if it's not that way then that means that it's wrong yeah are there any others that you could think of that might be potential like joseph smith wrote the book of mormon and i find out x whatever fill in the blank what might be the assumption that i'm making
0: well for example think about the bank failure of kirtland ohio some people might think well why is Joseph Smith telling people to invest in the Kirtland Safety Society? If he's a prophet, he should have known that it was going to fail. So maybe he's not a prophet. Then maybe he didn't translate the Book of Mormon. So I, I think anything that attacks the prophetic yeah. power of or mantle of Joseph Smith is something that could then cause someone to question the authorship of the Book of Mormon.
1: You've you've gone through all of these different studies and research, compiling different people's research in all of these different areas. I want to say different areas. But uh, you've been in the thick of it, is what I'm trying to say. What are some of the things that you've noticed in the distinction of these different voices? So
0: back in 2011, I had a good friend named Randall Wright, and he invited myself and a couple of other professors, Sean Hopkin and Jennifer Brinkerhoff, to work with him to split apart the text of the Book of Mormon by the person who is speaking. And if you're ever looking for a fun exercise to do in your scripture study— this is great you know to, to, to like walk through the text and figure out like okay when's Nephi talking and then Nephi will say thus saith the Lord yeah so then like, now we got the voice of the Lord when does it go back to Nephi to Jacob mm-hmm. So we took the entire Book of Mormon and we split it apart by the person who was speaking and then with the help of some people with a software program called Wordcruncher, we put it all into a database okay. And by the way, this database Wordcruncher you can download it for free at wordcruncher.com. And this Voices in the Book of Mormon database is a part of it. You can just download it for free. And what it allows you to do is pick any word, repent. And all of a sudden, you can find out who says the word repent in the Book of Mormon and see Mm. if there's unique patterns around them. So we were able to use this database then to try to start to figure out who has unique voices. And sometimes it's in really small words. Mm. Like Alma, he'll use the word now. And yay, statistically more than any other major speaker, and you can kind of hear it once you're like Mm, once once you're looking for it, you see like there's an urgency in Alma's speeches. You know, now I want you to do this. Yay, behold! You know, let's do this. Let's do this. Like that's kind of an Alma. He's an intense guy. You can you can feel that. Sometimes they're more theological in nature. You'll see, for example, Jacob uses words like death, Mm. hell way more than any other speaker mm. and so while there's a really tender side to jacob he also uses the word anxiety more than any other speaker there's also sort of a a side that says there is really a god there really is a devil he really has angels and you're going to be one of them if you don't follow god's path
1: it's a distinctive way that jacob speaks you know what you just gave me this thought this is so random like uh you know, angels speak by the power of the Holy Ghost before they speak the words of Christ. I'm wondering if when Joseph Smith is translating, I'm wondering if, like, uh, if they were, repre- like, you know, if they were in the re- translation process talking, you know what I mean? Hmm. And that, that's so random. I, that's so speculatory. I'm not trying to speculate, but what if that, because because it makes me think of the question of if Joseph Smith did this, we're talking about translating from words, right? Like, do you have your distinct voice within the thing that you wrote, but in this case, Joseph Smith is translating something that somebody else wrote, right? One of the interesting things that scholars have found is that word
0: prints are detectable even through translation. Really? So if you take like a author who wrote in Spanish and a separate author who wrote in Spanish and their works are translated into English and we do the word print analysis on the English, we should be able to see a difference between those texts. This is still kind of an early state, like this is a like a newer phase of research, but the early research seems to indicate that stylometry is visible through translation. Wow, that's so. So Mormon's distinct voice, Nephi's distinct voice, Alma's distinct voice can come through
1: in English translation. That's really interesting. Yeah. And it would make sense because it's almost like the consistency and the aggregate of how it's being translated, we would probably see the same patterns. Yeah. Interesting.
0: Let me share with you one of my favorite distinctions, and this is one I can't take credit for. My son discovered it when he was 11 years old. So about this time, President Nelson gave an invitation to go through the Book of Mormon and look for every reference to Christ. So my son, bless his heart, he created a spreadsheet, and he would read, he was reading through the Book of Mormon. And every time he saw any reference to Jesus Christ, he would put it in a spreadsheet, and he— Kind of put, he put in like- How old is he now? He was 11 at the time. What a guy.
1: (laughs) This is amazing.
0: So he would put in like, if it was said God, he put in God, great God, or Lord, Lord God Almighty, every title he would have as a separate row. And then he had every chapter of the Book of Mormon in columns. And he would type in little numbers of how many times this specific title for Jesus Christ appeared in this chapter. Okay. So he is doing all this research and he shows me, and I noticed something that I thought was interesting. So in the book of Jacob, Jacob used the word God a lot more than he used the word Lord. Hmm. Now, to me, those would be kind of interchangeable terms. Yeah, yeah. And if we go back and look at First and Second Nephi, Nephi uses the word Lord a lot more than God. Hmm. But now the question, what about Second Nephi 9 and 10? In okay. these chapters, Jacob is the author. Jacob is yeah, speaking, yeah, yeah, yeah. but it's in 2 Nephi. And in those two chapters, it follows Jacob. Jacob's pattern. Really, God appears more than Lord.
1: Whoa! So he,
0: like, he showed me all this, and I was like, "We got to run this through That's in the amazing. database. We put it in the database, so, and what we found is that it is statistically significant that Jacob uses the word God more than Lord. Nephi uses the word Lord more than God. These two are different than each other.
1: So I think that some people may not even know, like in Second Nephi, Jacob is the one writing. He's the one speaking, and you know, and it, it does show that he does say that it's him speaking but what you'd realized was the same way that they referred to God or Lord was the distinction whenever he takes over in Second Nephi. Right on. Exactly. Right? Wow. So there are times, like you said before, where they are mentioning or they are quoting or they are speaking um, in different chapters. Yep. Right? So Jacob's pattern of speech in the book of Jacob
0: also appears in Second Nephi 9 and 10 when he is the attributed speaker. Wow. And uh, one other thing that I think is just so kind of intricate and detailed about this is I read the book of Mormon a bajillion times. You have to never notice this. That's amazing. So, so did Joseph Smith as he's translating? He's like, you know what? I'm going to create a unique <laughs> character named Jacob. Who's going to use the word God more than Lord. And then I got, I remember to switch it back and forth. Like mm-hmm. that just defies. That doesn't make any sense. Yeah.
1: So there's a distinction. There's a distinction in the voices in your 11 year old son figured this out. Yeah. Wow. What other, any other insights that you found? So uh there's, because i think it'd be cool to to go through the different voices right like you're kind of given some differences between the two or between all of them um what are some of the things that you found like who speaks the most you know what i mean yeah so the like, top what are the things like that
0: here's the top five speakers so mormon who's the main narrator uh, once we get towards mormon forward he's got the most words he accounts for about one third of all the words in the book of mormon so roughly okay Then Nephi comes in at number two. He accounts for about 10% of the words in the Book of Mormon. Third is a surprise. It's Alma. Alma. So even though Alma is not the primary author of any of the books, Mormon, who writes the Book of Alma, quotes Alma extensively. Mm -hmm. So Alma accounts for a little over 7% of the Book of Mormon. And Moroni, the son of Mormon, is just behind Alma. And then the fifth is Jesus Christ himself. Wow. And I think that's a powerful voice
1: to explore in the Book of Mormon. So the top five is, first is Mormon, uh, is Mormon because he's the one, he's abridging it. He's the one. Um, Can you give us an understanding? Because I think, because Nephi, to a degree, is in a way abridging more history. And I think that's probably why he's like, probably comes in second, right?
0: Yeah. So Nephi is the author of first and second Nephi.
1: So we're hearing his
0: voice directly. Once we get to... It's Mormon once yeah once you get to mosiah through mormon mormon is the narrator so even though we might think oh the book of helaman is written by helaman that's not correct helaman wrote the source text for it but mormon is abridging it or summarizing helaman his son's records and so mormon is technically the author so
1: the narration we hear from mosiah to mormon 7 that's mormon and he's telling these distinct stories of people and and oftentimes isn't there a a little bit of a distinction where he's not necessarily quoting people, right? But he's almost like hypothetically speaking on behalf of them, correct?
0: Yeah, I mean, so this gets back to the question of like, how do we know what a specific person said? Because they're not like doing voice memos at the time yeah. Samuel the Lamite speaking from the wall. So I, mean, I think there is some kind of question as to what extent is Mormon drawing on quotations from original authors? And to what extent are those original authors giving like verbatim transcripts versus kind of their summary of what they said. Yeah. So I think there there's some a little bit of uh, kind of question that's up in the air. But here's something that's like a unique voice that I find fascinating is Samuel the <laughs> Lamanite. Okay. So Samuel the Lamanite, there's something unique about him in the Book of Mormon. Multiple times we read Mormon telling us that Samuel spoke the words that God put into his mouth. Hmm. So God's putting things into his heart, Samuel speaking them. Samuel is going to quote from Amulek, Alma, Nephi, Jacob. And the way that he quotes from these earlier authors is really interesting. He, he takes prophecies about stuff that's going to happen in the future. And then he says, now is the time it's happening. Wow. So Alma had or Amulek had said something like, if you cast the righteous out from among you, then is the day you'll be destroyed. And Samuel says... You have cast out the righteous from among you. You will be destroyed. He takes Mm -hmm. prophecies that have been made in the past and shifts them forward in the future. And that's a consistent thing that he does. Or he'll take words that were spoken about the Nephites and show how they're now true about the Lamanites. That the Nephites were the righteous ones. Now the Lamanites are the righteous ones. Mm. And so as you think about this phrase that Mormon uses that the Lord is putting words into Samuel's heart, it makes me think that here's Samuel. He had been studying the Hmm. words of earlier prophets. And then now as he's teaching, God's putting into his heart These words in the very moment, he's treasured up the word. And now in the very moment, God is helping Samuel give the message that he needs. That's one of the values, I think, of doing this study of individual voices in the Book of Mormon is it forces us to kind of slow down. Because we're used to just like, we just got to get through my chapter. You know, we're just reading the text and we already know what's going to happen. So this forces us to slow down and think about Samuel the Lamanite's a real person. Or here's another example. Alma the Younger is counseling his son, Corianton. Corianton on his mission had done some things that weren't right. Now imagine that you're counseling with your son. Your son is thinking about leaving the covenant path. And he says, dad, I'll listen to you one last time. This is your Mm -hmm. last shot to talk Mm -hmm. to your son, to try to help him out. What are you going to say? What words will you turn to, to help your son? Now think about Alma, the younger, his dad, Alma, the elder had been converted from the words of Abinadi. As dad was going astray when he's one of King Noah's priests, Abinadi brought dad back. So now Alma's thinking, my son's going astray. Let's turn to Abinadi. Mm. So when you start, when you're attuned to the individual voices of Abinadi and Alma, what you see is that when Alma talks to Corianton, there's about a dozen times where he will quote from Abinadi. He never says, thus says Abinadi, but if you look at the word phrases side by side, it's obvious he's quoting Abinadi. And here's what's cool. Corianton has three major concerns, and the quotes from Abinadi all address those concerns. Wow. It's like what Alma's doing is he's saying, I hope the words that help my father will help my son. He's carefully crafting his message. Ooh to this bless Corinthians. Yeah, and so like that's a this, nugget yeah. that you
1: don't see if yeah. you're not attuned to the individual voices. So uh there's these very intricate experiences that people are naturally going to that aren't just we're not, you know, checking the box. I'm reading today, but No Alma had this real experience with his real son and he's going to use his his uh his his dad's experience to help help him come back. Yeah. yeah. So he, Alma one of the people that we might not think of as a major
0: speaker in the Book of Mormon, let me just give you a few of his kind of signature things that he talks about, the plan. Okay. So the plan, as in the plan of redemption or the plan of salvation, this plan is mentioned 30 times in the Book of Mormon and more than half come from
1: Alma. Wait, so it's mentioned 30 times and he mentions them 15. Yeah, 18. 18. Mm, Better fact check that. Yeah, we can fact check that, but I'm saying he, he really cares
0: about this. Yeah, more than half the times. Or another word that's distinctive to Alma is the word soul. Mm. So in almost every address Alma gives, he uses the word soul. And when he talks about resurrection, he says the soul and body will be reunited again. Now we would think like, oh, it should be the spirit. But that, this is how Alma's talking. When Jacob talks about the resurrection, he talks about the spirit and body, okay. being united again. So yeah, it's like this subtle detail that Jacob talks about. And Jacob is the second most frequent user of the word soul, hmm. but he doesn't use it how Alma does. He doesn't say the soul and body will come together for resurrection.
1: That's more of what Alma does. So... So what's the distinct, what do you think? I mean, obviously we don't want to speculate, but like, because people could say, well, I thought the spirit, the soul is the body and the spirit, right? And Alma just, think
0: I just think Alma, Alma doesn't have Doctrine and Covenants 88 in his mind. He's not thinking about that distinction. I think it's just a unique way that he speaks. Another example is questions. So you know that Alma 5 is full of questions. Even if you took out Alma Mm 5, Alma still asks more questions than any other speaker in the Book of Mormon. Really? This is, again, one of his signatures. About 20% of all the... There's 543 questions in the Book of Mormon, and almost 20% of them come from Alma. Wow. Who only accounts for 7% of the text.
1: So this is just like his propensity is to teach Mm. by asking questions. Maybe he was kind of more of a teacher, you know? Maybe he was kind of like... It would be interesting to consider, like, the personalities, you know? If you were to do, like, a personality, like, breakdown of, uh, of the different... Because um, I know that people have done that. And I know, like, you know, like, the Myers-Briggs test, like, you know, like scientifically you can look at the consistencies that it breaks down into, like, the intuitive versus... Um, extroverted versus introverted, you know, whatever. Anyway. Yeah, it would be interesting to see. But like even just, the, but even like in the consistencies of the words they say, if it compares to that, but. So Alma says the word, he asks a lot of questions. Asks a lot of questions. And, and I think that you're right.
0: There is something about the personality. When you think about Jacob, who uses the word anxiety more than anyone else, he uses words like tender or wound. And he's the only one that uses the word wound to talk about feelings. Others are about like physical wounds. That makes us start to think about Jacob. What, what is it like if you're born in the wilderness mm. and when you're four years old or five years old, you're on a ship and you see your older brother tied up by your other older brothers mm. and your mom and dad are like, hey guys, stop. And they're like, shut up, mom and dad. And like, that's your mom and dad. And you're five years old. Like mm. there's probably what we would call today, like a lot of psychological scarring in Jacob. Mm. It's not surprising that more than anyone else, he talks about anxiety. And, and again, like these thinking about his unique voice then helps us think about him as a unique person and what it feels like to grow up. And I'm not sure exactly how old he was. Maybe he's 15, 25 years old. And Nephi like knocks on his door one day. He's like, Hey Jacob, we're heading out. And you're all of a sudden split. You're leaving your family behind. Like this is a challenging life that Jacob has thinking about his voice
1: helps us think about him as a person. Are there any personal connections you have with any of them from you personally? Does that make sense? Like which one, whenever you got, because not many people have gone through all of this data, right? Right. Which is the one that just like, it just is like, man, I know that guy from my own personal experience.
0: So there, there's a lot. What Jacob really stands out to me for a couple of reasons. One is that He becomes a foundational figure. We probably don't realize this, but multiple later prophets, King Benjamin, Mormon, Moroni, they're all going to, Samuel the Lamanite, they're all going to be quoting from Jacob.
1: Yeah. yeah. So
0: the words that he has Mm. make a huge impact on later prophets. They made a big impact on me. I mentioned that Jacob will use words like hell fire, brimstone, death, like some of the kind of like the serious words he uses more than any other author. Uh, This is like a little bit nerdy, but when I say like he uses them more, I just want to put the caveat that that means proportionally more because Jacob Mm. speaks way fewer words than Mormon. So we'd expect Mormon to have more words. So a lot of times you'll use a statistic called the number of times a word is used per 1,000 words spoken. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So per one thousand words spoken, Jacob is using words like hell, uh, death, fire way more than
1: any other I speaker. See, I see the ratio.
0: Yeah, the ratio, and one of those is in Second Nephi chapter nine. And yeah, I remember favorite, is that mm. there's a lot of beauty, but yeah. there's also a lot of sternness. Mm-hmm. And I remember uh, when I was maybe ten years old, I was. Certainly not a wicked child, but maybe not always the most obedient. And we had this family home evening where we read Second Nephi nine, and I was like, "What? I
1: better, I better <laughs> shape
0: up. Like, this is not look good." And I know this really happened because my grandmother, a few who was, happened to be visiting us for that family meeting, wrote me a letter a few weeks later, and she's like, "I noticed that after that family home evening, you started becoming a lot better." Really? So i mean, you know, I I think Jacob has a unique voice, and that voice really spoke to me. Now there might be some people who talk of hell and fire and brimstone is gonna be, you know, I don't know, too much. And maybe a different voice
1: is gonna speak to them. T- tell me more about it though. Why did it hit you so hard as a little kid whenever you read that? And even now, whenever you're looking at the consistency, you even know even more that it was so specific. Yeah. What was it about it that touched you? Well, I mean, I think it's just a little kid. I was like, I don't want to have that hell and fire and brimstone, like that doesn't
0: sound good. As an older person, though, let's face it, like, this is not a happy thing to talk about. You're a bishop. Like, when you're up at the pulpit, my guess is you spend more time talking about God's love and mercy and repentance than you do hell, fire, brimstone. This is just like, it's a more pleasant topic. Yeah. But I love that Jacob is not afraid hmm.
1: to say the hard thing. Yeah, but what you said, he uses the word anxiety. I think that he has, He maybe he's more of a caring person, like, he really doesn't want this for his people right cuz he's writing cause in his mind i think that he knows that he's that eventually i'm sure he had an idea that he's going to be talking to us but the context of it though is he's like i want i'm talking to my people i'm talking to my family i do not want this to happen to you you know that's why my
0: the chapter in my book on jacob is called jacob tender and stern yeah he's both and honestly i think that we see that today with president nelson with president oaks with other church leaders the ability to speak truth and sometimes this can be like oh wow
1: i I gotta step up you remember president nelson saying i'm gonna have to which talk was it he's like i'm gonna have to report soon i don't know when he's gonna he didn't know when he's gonna die but i'm gonna come before god and i'm gonna have to look at joseph and i'm gonna look at brigham and i'm gonna be like this is what i did when i was Whenever I had the mantle, you know, he doesn't say those words, but he's like, "I'm going to be accountable for this." You yeah, know? I think we see in our modern prophets and apostles
0: firm direction, but also that tender, loving care, and that's something that Jacob exemplifies in his voice. I don't think that the right reason to be a Christian or to follow Jesus is because you're scared of fire and bricks. Yeah, I don't. So, know. <laughs> so I don't think that, like, as a ten-year-old, I think that was a, a you know a good a good boost for me, um, and I think that maybe. At, times, at different times in our lives, we're going to have different motivations and some motivations are better than others. Hopefully today I'm motivated to love God and serve him because I love God, but not um, out of a, a fear motive. But I think sometimes maybe at different stages in a person's conversion process, maybe different motivations are going to come into play.
1: So so before we leave the topic, are there any other distinctions that you thought were interesting and insightful to you? So here's one that I I do think is kind of interesting is to notice how
0: Mormon uses some phrases differently. Mm. So there's a phrase he talks about being baptized unto repentance. This is a consistent phrase that Mormon uses Mm. until we get to 3 Nephi 11 when Jesus Christ visits the people. And over and over again, Jesus will talk about being baptized in his name. From that time on, from 3526 on, Mormon does not use the phrase baptized unto repentance anymore. He uses the phrase baptized in the name of Jesus. Interesting. And so I kind of feel like either either Mormon is learning as he's abridging. And so he's like, this is, you know, the way I talk. And now he's like, oh, Jesus talks this way. And he switches or maybe he's being true to the source records. What he's reading about is earlier narrators had used the phrase baptized unto repentance. So he kind of follows suit. Mm-hmm. But then once Jesus comes, there's a shift in how people talk about baptism. And so to see that it's like it's just this clear demarcation. Where's it at? 30 35... Yeah. Well, the it's in thirty five eleven is when Jesus himself is emphasizing being baptized in his name. And then after that, thirty five twenty-six and forward as Mormon is narrating. He never used that phrase, baptized into repentance. He shifts and uses baptized in the name of Jesus. Well, isn't that what Jesus
1: said? He's like, you, you're baptizing in my name. So right. he's like, okay, that's what he said. You're right? right? I wonder if that's what it is. He's yeah. just like, oh, we'll do that now. You know? Exactly. Okay. Joseph Smith didn't write the Book of Mormon. There were these individual people who really existed, who have their own unique voice that wrote the Book of Mormon. What have you found? in your own perspective, and even from what you see that you know is true, right, of of insights that you have about God's voice in in his son, Jesus Christ, as you've done this research? One of the things that was super interesting was to look at
0: the voice of Jesus Christ when he's textually identified as Jesus Christ, which is in 3511, Christ is personally there preaching to them, but there are several other times in Second Nephi, in First Nephi, in Mosiah, where it's really clear from the text that Jesus Christ himself is speaking, and he identifies himself as such. So we gathered all of those references together to be able to see the unique voice of Jesus Christ in the Book of Mormon. And there are some things that are sort of like small little details, like the word verily, 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 I say unto you. You would think that that's just like a mm. common scriptural phrase. Nephi says it. Everyone says it. But that's not true. Only Jesus says it. With one or two small exceptions, the word verily
1: is just associated with Jesus Christ.
0: Give us the context of
1: that word. Give us the meaning. I mean, we know. So it's strategy. kind of like
0: truly, truthfully, I tell you, uh, I'm telling you the truth might be another way of saying it. But mm-hmm. it's it's one of those kind of distinctive signature phrases It's unique to Jesus in the Bible, Mm. and it's unique to Jesus in the Book of Mormon. What does it tell us? To me, it just kind of shows that this is a distinctive way. It's to me, it's telling me that Jesus Christ is a real person who has a real way of speaking. Now, Mm. much more like that's like a nitpicky example. Much more significant to me, we're seeing how more than any other person in the Book of Mormon, Jesus Christ uses the words baptize, name. And Father. Wow. And I think there's a lot of like power in each one of those. So let's take, for example, the word baptize, Mm. whether you're looking at the words of Jesus Christ within third Nephi or outside of third Nephi, he uses the word baptize way more than any other speaker. When it comes to invitations to be baptized, he directly invites people to be baptized way more than any other speaker. Wow. And I don't know about you, but in the past, like if my bishop called me and said, we'd like you to speak in church on one of the first principles and ordinances of the gospel, baptism probably would have been my last choice. <laughs> like faith, I love, repentance, holy <sighs> ghost, everything. Like those are all great. But like baptism, I I would be like, eh, like I don't know what to say about baptism. But now that I see Jesus Christ himself heavily emphasizes it, it made me realize, wow, I need to think more about my own baptism and I need to be more bold in inviting others to come unto Christ and be baptized. What's interesting, though, is that the ratio with which Jesus uses the word baptize is the same before he comes mm. as mm. while he comes. Mm. So whether he's there in person or whether he's speaking back in 2 Nephi 31, Jesus is emphasizing the importance of being baptized with the same amount of frequency. Why do you think that is? I just think it signals to us how important baptism is. And maybe for some people... Maybe I grow up in the church, I get baptized when I mate. It just kind of feels like almost a rite of passage. It's a reminder, this is not a rite of passage. This is a sacred covenant. And I, mm-hmm. I'm not trying to like suggest how missionaries should proselytize or anything like that. But you know, sometimes I've heard missionaries say like, oh, well, I don't want to like rush people to be baptized. And obviously, you don't want to rush anyone to be baptized. But we also don't want to minimize the importance or the urgency of baptism, mm-hmm. of making this covenant, and you can feel that urgency in the voice of Jesus Christ. Another thing that's really powerful is we talk about being baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. More than any other speaker, Jesus connects his name with being baptized. Wow. So it's personal to him. And I think he that's puts an, his name on it. Yeah. You're being baptized. In my name, not just being baptized, kind of like in the past, you know, we might say, Oh, the atonement. But yeah, now we've now been reminded, yeah. No, it's the Savior's atonement, the atonement of Jesus Christ. It's not just baptism, it's being baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. That's what the Savior's emphasizing a personal connection between Him and baptism, which for me, exactly, and, yeah. that which makes our being baptized not a checkbox, not a ritual, it's a connection with Jesus Christ.
1: Like he's owning this. He's like saying, "I want this so bad for you and I'm putting I'm willing to put skin in the game and I did put skin in the game." You know what I mean? Like yeah. this is a like it's not just this thing that you're doing, it's the thing that I am like I'm taking part of. I want to be a part of it, you know? Yeah. That's so powerful. Anything else?
0: So speaking of his name, this is another Uh, Interesting point. The Savior uses the word name also proportionally more than any other speaker in the Book of Mormon. So sometimes it's talking about being baptized in his name. Another example is when he talks about the church being in his name. And I don't know, like as I'm reading through, and Jesus, they're asking, like, hey, what should we call the church? And Jesus says, how be it my church, save it be called in my name. If it'd be called in the name of a man, then it'd be the church of a man. But if it's called in my name, it's my church. You can see that Jesus yeah. cares about his name. Wow. For me, this one has been really interesting to make me think about how often do I use the name of Jesus Christ? Mm. And I think maybe when I was growing up, a verse that was really emphasized was from Doctrine and Covenants 107, where it's talking about the Melchizedek Priesthood. It used to be called the priesthood after the order of the yes. Son of God, but to avoid too frequent repetition, they change it to Melchizedek Priesthood. Mm. So I was kind of taught growing up, don't say the name Jesus very often. could be disrespectful. And obviously we don't want to disrespect his name, but seeing how much the Savior himself emphasizes his name made me wonder if in my life, I've like kind of the pendulum for me has swung too far where out of you know respect, I don't say his name enough. Mm. And maybe I need to say his name more. Mm. And as I've thought about that, think about like a dinner table conversation, like picture mm. a mom, a dad, eating broccoli, spaghetti mm. with the kids. And it's like, so how did you see the hand of Jesus Christ in your life today? Yeah. Or I'm tucking in a child into bed and I say, I want to testify to you. I know Jesus Christ loves you. Like there's a power that comes with saying the name of Jesus Christ, obviously reverently, respectfully, and I'm certainly not suggesting that we should use his name in vain or like make it too frequent. Mm. But again, for me personally, seeing the Savior's emphasis on his name made me wonder if I needed to emphasize his name more than I had been.
1: Well, isn't it a way that we live as well? I mean, I just it makes me think of Moses chapter 5 when, he's, when the angel appears to Adam and Eve. And then they're offering sacrifice. And he says, well, why are you offering sacrifice? And he's like, I don't, I don't, I know not say the Lord commanded me. And then he says, this, ye shall do in the name of the son. And he says, mm-hmm. he commands them to do all that thou will do is do in the name of the son, like everything we do. And I don't think it's just what we say, but it's like, I'm living in his name. I'm doing things in his name. You know what I mean? Everything you do, do in the name of the Son, I think that that's an interesting distinction, you know? Yeah. More than just obviously bringing it up, but the way that I interact with people, the way that I talk to people, the way that I, the way that I think, you know, to do it according to his will, to let him prevail. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I love that. So I, I don't know. I think that that's something that we should all consider. And I've never even thought of until you said that, you know? I think
0: about like our family prayers. I I st- once I started to see the Savior's emphasis on name. I noticed that in our family prayers, we had a lot of like little phrases like Heavenly Father, thankful for this day. Yeah, bless yeah. the food to nourish and strengthen my body. Yeah. But I didn't hear a lot of the name Jesus Christ in our prayers, except sometimes at the end, like in a rush, like in the name of Jesus Christ, Amen. Yeah, yeah. Kind makes you wonder, like, okay, so could huh. I be praising the Savior more, reflecting on Him more, pondering on Him more, and slowing down when I say his name at the end of the prayer. So again, I'm not trying to script people's prayers or say this is what everyone needs to do. But for me, thinking about like just being a little more conscientious of what does it mean to take upon myself the name of Jesus Christ? He cares about his name. Do I care about his name? And do I show that in the things that I do, the things I say, what I post on social media, so forth? Well, it's
1: the covenant we've made to always remember him that we might always have the spirit to be with us. I mean, if we remember him, I think part of that is doing things in his name, doing things according to his will, right? Yeah. I don't know if that's exactly what the intention is. I feel like a lot of this is in the context of covenant, right? It's in the context of like he wants like baptism, it's in the context of the covenant. And even at the front page of the Book of Mormon, he's saying, I have a covenant with Israel and I am gonna go through the third and fourth generation to, to get this covenant back. And when he appears, he's like, I'm serious what I said. I want you in my covenant. I want you to be baptized. I want to be with you. I want to be connected with you. I want to help you. And I put my, I put my life on the line for it. And in fact, I gave it all for it, you know? Yeah. Um, so th- yeah.
0: I want to give you one more. Yeah. Uh, and that is that more than any other speaker, Jesus talks about the father. Mm. He quotes the father. He defers to the father. He emphasizes the father's commandments And you sense this deep reverence that Jesus Christ has for Heavenly Father. So that's something Mm. for us to emulate. But I also think it's interesting because I've talked with people, some people who have said, I feel really close to Heavenly Father because I prayed to Him, but I don't feel close to Jesus Christ. That's a good question. Or I feel close to Jesus, but I don't feel close to Heavenly Father. And seeing how frequently Jesus Christ is emphasizing, quoting from, referring to His Father is just a reminder that, as He said, I and my father are one. So if I'm close to the father, I'm close to Jesus. If I'm close to the savior, I'm close to heavenly father. Sometimes I think we have a tendency to try to like, we want to like just dis- make some distinctions, you know, like yeah. God's here, Jesus is here, Holy Ghost is here. And it is definitely true that they are three distinct people. But the savior is not like kind of mm. distancing himself from the father, he's bringing. Him and the Father together, referencing the Father. And so to me, it's just a reminder that as we become closer
1: to one member of the Godhead, we're becoming closer to all of them. Because their purpose is the same. Yeah. And he's always like, even in the New Testament, he's saying, I'm doing this for him. This is what he told me to do. And when in 3517, he he's about to leave. And he's like, the Father has something else for me to do. But he stays. But he's like, but he's still, I think that he's like wondering if that's what he wants him to do, maybe. I don't know. He's wanting to always line himself up with them. Yeah, that's a great example in 3517. And then and then when we get to chapter 19,
0: it's like, okay, the father really has stuff for me to do. I I've got to go.
1: Yeah. But then later
0: in 3519, as he's praying with his people, like he's praying, Father, help these people become one with us, just like you and I are one. So the same level of unity mm. that Jesus Christ has with the Father, he wants
1: us to have with him. It's that practice, and I guess we, in the long term, is what he really, really wants. Yeah. So, with that, and, with that said, what is your, what is does God in, in like, what does He put on your soul, as Alma might say, right? Using the word soul, <laughs> know, pun intended. Right? <laughs> like, and Alma means soul, right? What would He doesn't it? Isn't that what it means? Like, yeah, in, in, in Spanish, Spanish. in Spanish. And yeah. I don't know. Anyway, I'm getting off. But what I'm saying is, what is He what do you feel like he wanted, like you did this research, what do you feel like he wanted you to know about him?
0: I think that one of the things, I mean, there's this research has brought me closer to Heavenly Father and Jesus Christ in so many ways. One of the ways is to, for me personally, is to emphasize more, learning all I can about Jesus Christ. Part of that is studying the words of Jesus Christ. Part of it is noticing how different book of Mormon authors have distinctive ways of speaking of Jesus Christ, of testifying of him, Mm. emphasizing different parts of his gospel or different names for the savior. And it's a reminder that the more we know Jesus Christ, the more we study his teachings, the more we come to understand who he is, the more we're going to love him and the more we're going to want to keep his commandments. So sometimes people will say like, Oh, I don't, I feel like I know Heavenly Father because I prayed to Him, but I don't know Jesus Christ. Well, study His words. Learn all you can about Jesus Christ. The more you know about a person, the more you care about them and love them. And the same is true for studying Jesus Christ. So, for me, one of my big takeaways from writing this book has been to focus on the voice of Jesus Christ and how
1: other prophets testify of Him. Take me back to the, if we're going to harmony, we're out, right? You have these distinct voices. What do you notice as the harmony of all of the voices? Because we know, we we hear people, we believe that the prophets are speaking on behalf of the Lord. I'm like, you know, especially in the context of the covenant, right? What, did you notice any consistencies? I don't want it to be a loaded question. Do you notice any consistencies that harmonize their voices? So one of the ways
0: that I think you see a harmony of voices is, in how later prophets will take their own voice and combine it with the voice of a previous prophet. One of the people who does this more than anyone else is Moroni. Mm. So Moroni, the last author of the Book of Mormon, is going to be quoting Jacob, or he'll quote from Nephi, or he'll quote from even his own father, Mormon. Grant Hardy, in his book, Understanding the Book of Mormon, brings out one of the most beautiful examples of voices speaking in harmony. And if you look at just like the last 10 or so verses in the Book of Mormon, in these 10 verses, Moroni will quote, these are his last words. He'll quote from the last words of Nephi, Lehi, Enos, Amalekai, Mormon. In other words, it's sort of like the analogy Grant Hardy uses is a Mm. curtain call where everyone comes out for one last bow. Mm. In his last words, Moroni is bringing out earlier book of mormon authors for one last bout by quoting their last words it's this beautiful oh. harmony of voices and the kind of thing that no one had discovered in the first 180 years after the book of mormon had been published there's he's no, quoting them there's no way that joseph smith was making that up
1: no way there's no way and if you look at you're talking chapter 10 yeah and he's and he's come unto christ and be perfected in him who's he quoting that's, uh, he's quoting Amalachi. He's quoting Amalekite, and he's saying, all of these prophets have been telling you about Jesus Christ. And let me give you my, some of my favorites. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and come unto him and deny yourselves of all ungodliness. Nephi
0: tells us that he saw Jesus Christ. Jacob tells us, I saw Jesus Christ. Mm. Mormon, Moroni these are witnesses of the savior and they have words from him that I need to deeply integrate. And I don't know for me, like just remembering that these are real individuals makes it so that it's not just words on a page. I'm not just reading the book of Mormon cause that's what we're studying and come follow me. Or that's what like, I know I'm supposed to do. Mm. I'm reading it cause I'm learning from prophets who have seen Jesus Christ and they've seen me, they've seen our day mm. and they're writing with specific messages to us. So when we've been talking about witnesses of the Book of Mormon, we're often speaking about like the different prophets. But if we go back to the translation process of the Book of Mormon, think about the three witnesses and Mm -hmm. the eight witnesses. These people are up close with the translation process. One of those is David Whitmer. So part of the translation is taking place in his home. Of of anyone who knows about the translation, David Whitmer's got to be in the top five. He sees an angel. He's confirmed that he's seen the plates. Well, a few years later, David Whitmer is living in Missouri, and according to some eyewitness accounts, as part of the Missouri mobs, David Whitmer is pulled into the county square, and all of these militiamen are pointing a gun at David Whitmer's chest, and the general says, look, if you deny the Book of Mormon, you can go be a free citizen, otherwise we're going to kill you. I mean, think about that moment. If you've been making up this whole thing, it was like a little practical joke, you know, now's the perfect time to reveal it.
1: Okay, okay, okay. No, I was
0: kidding. Yeah. But David Whitmer, in this context, lifts up his hands and he says, the Book of Mormon is the word of God. And then the mob lets him go. Wow. I wouldn't base my testimony of the Book of Mormon on that episode from David Whitmer's life, but it's a powerful witness that someone who is up close with the translation process did not believe Joseph Smith made it up. Mm -hmm. He believed that the Book of Mormon was the word of God and he was
1: literally willing to stake his life on it. So you believe the Book of Mormon is true? Absolutely. And you believe that the witnesses of the Book of Mormon, witness of Jesus Christ? 100%. We've talked about a lot of really amazing things and I always say this at the end. I believe that these things are true, but don't take our word for it. Find out for yourself. Amen. Until next time.